Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception. But I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. I did not trade arms for hostages. Welcome to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I'm here to tell the stories that we found out the hard way through public records and FOIA requests. This week, I'm sharing an interview with Patrick Eddington, someone whose work I find absolutely fascinating. He's not only a FOIA expert, but also shares my interest in the activities of the American intelligence agencies, particularly the FBI. This interview was recorded in May 2022, long before any of the finger-pointing and mistrust that has followed the Mar-a-Lago search and other related accusations uh, in 2023. I had a couple of health crises and did not get back on schedule for recording and editing audio very quickly. So keep in mind as you listen that this is perspective that Patrick gave without knowing what was going to happen next in the long history of controversy surrounding the FBI. Patrick Eddington first came across my radar because of his work on civil liberties and surveillance for the Cato Institute. But I really got into his work when I learned how frequently he uses the Freedom of Information Act to assess surveillance activities. This week, Patrick and I are going to talk about two discoveries he made when submitting FOIA requests to the FBI. And really, both discoveries should scare you no matter what side of the political spectrum you find yourself on. If you're going to fight the government, you actually have to know what the government is doing. That's really what it comes down to here. And it's especially important in the national security arena uh, and the intelligence arena where so much stuff takes place behind this cloak of secrecy, which more often than not is not justified. <laughs> it's always interesting to me to see how someone like Patrick got into making FOIA requests. It actually started when I was working at the Central Intelligence Agency, and I actually FOIA'd my employer for a bunch of classified material, which I had personally seen and had access to, because I was convinced it was completely relevant to a lot of the illnesses that were being reported by Desert Storm veterans, that being, of course, the 1991 Persian Gulf War. Uh, so long story short, doing that actually was one of the first things that triggered a counterintelligence investigation by the CIA against me. That's not something that should happen under FOIA. It is not something that is actually allowed under FOIA. That doesn't stop folks in the executive branch from doing things. So that was actually my first experience. And then as I continued to work this whole thing called Gulf War Syndrome after I left CIA in October of 1996, I wound up doing an enormous amount of FOIA work and doing a number of cases there in order to force an awful lot of stuff out into the public domain, mainly about how ill-prepared we were for any kind of chemical agent exposures among veterans and so on and so forth. And I think what surprised me when I got to Cato was how few people actually engaged in using FOIA. Um, for me, it was like a real anomaly because when I think about trying to engage in citizen-centric oversight, and that's really what FOIA is all about at the end of the day, you can't do it. This reluctance to use FOIA requests is actually fairly common in my experience, even though Patrick found it to be anomalous. As far as I've seen, advocates seem to feel like only special people get to use FOIA, and this could not be further from the truth. Anyone can submit a FOIA and is entitled to a response from the agency. If you're not sure how to submit a FOIA request, but think that you have something that you want to know, 
There's a link in the podcast notes to a good how-to guide. Patrick left the executive branch in 96, but he did get involved in monitoring that branch and stayed abreast of what was happening there. Recently, he's become more interested in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. In terms of your potential for interaction with federal law enforcement, it's the number one federal law enforcement agency that you're likely to come into contact with, unless you're a fairly frequent international traveler, in which case it would be Customs and Immigration Service and so on. But in any kind of of criminal or civil context, it's going to be the FBI that you're going to be most likely to have to deal with at the federal level. Once you turned your attention to the FBI, where did you start your investigation? When I look at essentially how a federal agency or department, a law enforcement entity, kind of operates in this space. And in some respects, I'm kind of playing counterintelligence officer when I do this because I'm trying to put myself in their shoes to a certain degree. And so that means that you have to understand the structure of the organization. You need to understand what its basic operating guidelines are, principles, statutes, all the rest of that. And then really understanding the history and the organizational culture, I think, is absolutely key. With respect to the Bureau, it's been around since July of 1908. It was created completely out of whole cloth at the Department of Justice. It's never had any authorizing legislation. Just a quick interruption to explain all the weird legal issues at play here. When Patrick says that the Bureau has never had any authorizing legislation, It may sound like he's saying it has less power because it never got Congress's explicit grant of authority. But in practice, what really happens is that when an executive agency acts without a specific grant of authority, it really means that the limits of that agency's power are too vague to enforce. So an agency that doesn't have authorizing legislation can just keep growing in power with no way to force it back into the box that Congress intended. Okay, back to what Patrick learned in becoming familiar with the FBI's culture and background. And then just the history of the Bureau itself. This is an organization that actually kind of sprang from the Secret Service. Most people don't know that, but the original core of agents that formed the so-called Bureau of Investigation that then Attorney General Charles Bonaparte put together in the summer of 1908, most of them came over from the Secret Service. They were ex-Secret Service agents. And the Secret Service was the first federal agency to engage in in domestic surveillance of a political nature. A lot of folks don't know that, but they did. And they did that for at least the first 20 years of the 20th century. I tend to think it's gone on longer than that. But the Bureau wound up uh, taking over an awful lot of that mission, particularly during World War I, but definitely after World War I. And when you look at, at the overarching history to just kind of bring it to the historical part to kind of a close here, What most folks who have any familiarity with this particular issue probably think about is the FBI's infamous counterintelligence or COINTELPRO operation, which was designed essentially to infiltrate, disrupt, and if not outright destroy a number of domestic civil society organizations. It wasn't just targeted at the Communist Party USA. That's how it started. But of course, it didn't remain focused on that. It spread out to looking at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and a whole range of the Black Panthers, a whole range of other groups from a civil society standpoint. But it didn't end there. (laughs) And that's really one of the big reasons why I chose to stay after it, because when you actually look at the history of the 1970s and the revelations about not just COINTELPRO, but the NSA Shamrock and Minaret programs and the CIA's MH Chaos and all this other stuff, 
The NSA and CIA programs that Patrick just mentioned are a little outside the scope of this particular podcast, but I definitely recommend a quick Google. It is incredibly interesting and terrifying. But the FBI's COINTELPRO program is right where we need to be for Patrick's discoveries to make sense. COINTELPRO is a portion of the FBI that then-director J. Edgar Hoover dedicated to squashing speech that he believed to be too disruptive and dangerous to allow. It was used against a lot of groups ranging from the Black Panthers to MLK to women's liberation groups. I'll include a link to some resources on it in the show notes, but that context is really important here when you consider the impact of what Patrick found once he started digging into the records. Just don't forget that the FBI has a history of using its power against advocacy groups engaging in intimidation and assassination under Hoover's control. Patrick's discoveries echo this abuse of power now and expose ongoing need for limitations on the FBI's power. What Patrick found after the break. Hey y'all, I hope you're enjoying the show. I got involved with Open Records because of my time on the board with the Washington Coalition for Open Government. WashCog is an incredible organization. They only have one employee and a board of really active volunteers. If you could help support the mission of Washington Coalition for Open Government, I would really appreciate it. See a link in the podcast notes. When the many abuses by intelligence agencies started to come out in the early 1970s, the Senate conducted an investigation using a special committee called the Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, but commonly known as the Church Committee for Senator Frank Church, who chaired it. The committee uncovered tons of really horrible things, including torture, propaganda programs, and assassinations, all worth checking out in the notes. These discoveries did lead to some changes in the intelligence community, but not lasting oversight. You get a series of reform uh, efforts that come out of that whole church committee period. You get the Inspector General Act of 1978. You get the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which was designed to prevent spying on Americans. It's actually been inverted (laughs) to become a principal tool for spying on Americans, unfortunately. And then you get the creation of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees. But the one thing that didn't happen, even though a lot of folks had it on their agenda, was creating an actual statutory charter to essentially put some boundaries around what the FBI could do. And there were legislative proposals that were actually on the table in the 1976 to 1978 era. But President Ford's Attorney General, Edward Levi, issued what became known later on as the Attorney General's Guidelines for Domestic Investigations by the FBI. And so Levi doing that had the effect essentially of thwarting or essentially making moot in the minds of many, the need for any kind of legislation. And so those attorney general guidelines have been through a whole series of revisions over the last quarter century, well, more than that now, over 40 years. And the last major iteration took place at the very end of the Bush 43 administration in December, 2008, when then attorney general Mike Mukasey created an entirely new category of proto-investigation called assessments. And the scary thing about that category is that they don't have to have any kind of criminal predicate to open an assessment on you, me, or any domestic civil society organization. They just have to have what they call an authorized purpose. And guess who gets to decide what that authorized purpose is? 
the FBI and the Department of Justice. And that's because we don't have a statutory charter to put some boundaries around this. So one of the key things about assessments is that they also um, somewhat limit the kind of tools that FBI agents can use when they want to open essentially one of these assessments. So for example, they cannot engage in wiretapping. However, they can utilize uh, confidential human sources. They can run those sources against individuals or groups, and they can conduct physical surveillance against individuals and groups. They can also utilize existing FBI databases, both unclassified, the kind that you, you basically buy for, let's say you want to buy from Palantir or you know whatever, one of those vendors, or they use existing government classified databases, which contain just troves of information on individuals and groups at the end of the day. They also have the ability to reach out to other federal, state, and local law enforcement partners for any information that they might have, right? So there's an enormous amount of data that they can pull and a fair amount of surveillance that they can do, and they can get away with all of it without ever having to go before a judge to justify it. There's also, as I like to tell people, essentially a bureaucratic incentive that, that's at work here, right? If you stop and think about what it is that cops and prosecutors get judged on, it, they get judged on the number of cases they open, the number of cases they close, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a huge statistical um, imperative, if you will, to show that they're, quote, doing something, right? And of course, people's promotions are tied to activity, right? So the bureaucratic incentives to engage in surveillance are already there. And when you put that together with, with a mindset that essentially kind of sees most citizens as suspects first and citizens a very distant second, it becomes a lot easier to understand why these abuses take place. And I started by basically putting in FOIAs on a wide range of civil society organizations. So groups on either side of the abortion debate, for example, Second Amendment related groups, women's groups, religious groups groups involved in the immigration space, um, groups operating in the civil liberty space, and so on and so forth. It also includes, in many cases, certain kinds of corporations, uh, VPN providers, for example, and on and on and on and on. Really quickly, you begin to understand that you're going to get into hundreds or thousands, essentially, of entities. And my attitude going into all of this was that even though that was going to be very labor-intensive, it was also going to be essentially a great way to figure out what they might have been doing, who they might have been focused on, just again, thinking about historical patterns and the like. I would have a list of, let's say, 50 or maybe 75 groups that were operating in the immigration space. What I was looking for were any records as defined in statute, and there's a specific statutory definition at the federal level of what constitutes a record, any records that actually mention those organizations. Now, I would usually put some boundaries around that or try to put some boundaries around that. In other words, I wouldn't care about press releases um, and I wouldn't care about press clips unless that clip was essentially part of a larger package of federal documents talking about the significance of the clip, what they were going to do about what the group was saying publicly, and so on and so forth. So Patrick started submitting his requests and the DOJ handles the FBI's responses to FOIA requests. But he started to get some weird responses, including a Glomar response about Cato, the institute where he works. The Cato Institute was one of 23 organizations for which we received uh, Glomar responses from the Department of Justice. Um, and these were a wide range of civil society organizations. 
could you explain what a Glomar response is? Glomar uh, refers to uh, a ship that was previously owned by the late Howard Hughes called the Glomar Explorer. It was a deep sea exploration vessel. And my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, approached Hughes back in the late 1970s about borrowing his ship in order to go and basically salvage a sunken uh, Soviet nuclear submarine in the Pacific. And they developed a cover story, uh, which was actually a credible cover story, you know, mining for uh, deep sea mining for magnesium nodules, which apparently can be fairly lucrative. Uh, I had no idea about this until I started poking around on it. But not shockingly, um, because of the very nature of what they were doing, uh, at least a couple of journalists figured it out, got wind about it, started asking around about it. And that prompted then uh, DCI um, Colby, Richard Colby, to go around essentially and try to get every news organization that had called about this to just walk away. You know, don't go there. This is too important. You know, don't do it. Uh, but there were some reporters who decided, no, we're going to we're going to go there. Uh, and they went into federal court. They filed FOIAs and were told we're not going to confirm or deny anything uh, having to do with with that particular issue. And this goes all the way up to the to the federal appellate level. Uh, and the reporters lose because the the government or the uh, the judges in the case say that no, this is a national security related issue, and if they were to confirm or deny, it, it could cause problems. And I'm I'm very 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 heavily now, kind of editing essentially what the judges said to kind of you know keep us on track here time wise, but the agency won the case, uh, and this is this is where this whole concept of we refuse to confirm or deny comes from, and it's tied directly to that Glomar Explorer case. But that's a prime example of one of the obstacles that you can run into with FOIA is because of a lot of the deference that federal courts have shown uh, to the executive branch, particularly with respect to national security or law enforcement related things over the decades. It has had the effect of making FOIA sometimes a little bit less useful than it otherwise could be. So that's the kind of response that Patrick got related to many of the advocacy organizations that he put in FOIA requests about, including his own. And something seemed off to him about that. And I had a feeling that that Glomar uh, was indicative of something, you know, being there. And so we filed a, a follow-up FOIA using a different set of keywords. And sure enough, the, you know, they've, they've coughed up a number of things. There are other things they have not coughed up um, that I know exist on the basis of other information I have, which I can't discuss publicly. So Glomar responses are annoying and I think wrong, but not mind-blowing or a big news story. But what Patrick is about to get into are the two discoveries that really made his FOIA research so important. The first that he's going to talk about is about assessments. And this is a type of investigative tool that he found to be used broadly against all types of organizations with no justification or reasoning as to why those organizations and not others, or why those organizations became the focus of government interest at all. One of the most recent ones uh, that we dealt with was last summer. That's on Concerned Women for America, which is a, a pro-life uh, women's group that's been around for the better part of four decades. They have a, a spotless uh, reputation, never been connected to any foreign terrorist organization or any foreign uh, intelligence assets, anything like that. Uh, and we got a response back from the Bureau. They actually turned over a, a redacted version of the assessment from July of 2016. And this is what makes these things very, very scary, these, these assessments. 
This particular Washington field office agent simply sat at his or her desk and did what they called a charity assessment. And that was literally my first time seeing that specific designation in connection with an assessment. And they simply used um, existing commercial databases and some classified databases uh, of access to the FBI to engage in a fishing expedition uh, about whether or not there was any kind of financial impropriety by Concerned Women for America. They had no, they had no criminal predicate to do it. Nobody had come to them to say, hey, I think this, the CFO is, is on the take or I think the CEO is on the take. None of that. There, there was none of that. Now, that assessment was opened and closed in the same day, so far as we can tell. But the very fact that they engaged in it at all without a criminal predicate just highlights the problem. And as our EVP, David Bowes, remarked at one point in a briefing that I was given, or that I was giving, he said, for the benefit of the audience, now, CWA would never have learned about this if we hadn't done the FOIA. Is that right? And I said, that's exactly right. So it just makes you wonder, you know, how many more groups kind of fall into that category? How many other individuals or organizations are out there that have been subjected to this kind of thing that have no clue that it's happened? First Amendment protected civil society activity. Every single one of us should be concerned about that. that. That's not what the Bureau should be doing. The Bureau should be hunting for spies. The Bureau should be hunting for bank robbers. <laughs> people that have actually violated real criminal statutes. And that's not to say that the Bureau doesn't do that, but it's pretty clear they're doing an awful lot of stuff that doesn't involve that, uh, that, that winds up implicating the rights of Americans. And that, that kind of thing has got to stop. There's a really close link between freedom of speech and freedom to advocate and the ability to act with privacy and to not have that privacy invaded without cause. And that's really what Eric is trying to get at with these assessments and their relationship to advocacy organizations. From a legal perspective, privacy is more than just a secret. It means the right to act without interference, not just without observation. Think of how differently you would feel if a random passerby sees you going to your car, as opposed to a stalker watching for you to go to your car. The act of going to the car isn't a secret, but if the viewer is looking for you, following you, that observation is an intrusion, a violation. The ability to act without being overseen is a basic component of privacy. When the law talks about privacy, it includes the right to independent decision-making without the consideration of what it might look like to someone else. The right to privacy was the basis for Roe v. Wade, even though there was no question of whether Miss Roe's abortion could be kept secret. The question was whether anyone had a right to interfere in her decision. It's not that these organizations are concerned that the government knows that they're hosting these kinds of events or that they have connections with those particular professors. It's that it might use that information against you in some way in the future. And that threat is enough to cause a privacy invasion that could limit First Amendment activities. What if you decided not to speak out because you don't want to draw too much attention? Those are the kinds of free speech implications that privacy has. Another good one. Uh, that illustrates, you know, how quickly they will essentially lie about something or conceal something for a period of time involves an entity called the National Security Archive, which is at uh, George Washington University here in D.C. And the NATSEC archive has been around since the early 1980s. It was actually established 
by a former reporter, as well as one of the one of the lead DOJ attorneys, former DOJ attorneys dealing with uh, dealing with FOIA matters, a guy by the name of Quinn Shea, Quinlan Shea. Um, and in 2005, the NatSec archive put in a FOIA with the FBI saying, what documents do you have on us? What records do you have on us? And the Bureau issued a, we have no records on you response. And the archive appealed. Uh, and they never heard back from the Office of Information Policy or OIP at DOJ about that appeal. So in 2019, uh, the National Security Archive was one of the many groups in which I put a FOIA into the FBI saying, you know, give me what you've got. And lo and behold, uh, in 2021, they turn over, I guess, about 50 some odd pages of material uh, and redact quite a bit more. And so I reached out to, to my friend, uh, Lauren Harper, uh, their policy counsel over at the National Security Archive. And I said, hey, did you all ever put in a FOIA on yourselves? Yeah, they said they didn't have anything. And I said, yeah, they lied to you. And so I, I shared all that with them. Uh, and of course, we turned that into an op-ed ultimately. Uh, to just kind of illustrate it, but this this included this material included a cable from then FBI William, FBI Director William Sessions in September of 1989, basically telling the Washington Field Office and other FBI elements to basically send anything back that they had on the National Security Archive. Um, unprecedented, you know. This is the head of the FBI saying, "Give me what you got," uh, and of course, everything that the archive does is First Amendment protected, right? But what we've been able to glean from the documents, even though many of them are very heavily redacted, is that the Bureau was absolutely obsessed with the contacts that archive people were having with the Cuban government over um, an effort to put together essentially some uh, remembrance type events for the Cuban Missile Crisis, among other things. And archive officials did travel to Cuba. They did talk to folks. They did meet with uh, Cuban officials uh, at the Cuban mission in Washington, but nobody at the archive obviously was ever engaged in any kind of espionage on behalf of the Cuban government or anything like that. But it's really clear when you look at the documents and the kinds of FBI documents that they are, that some level of physical and or electronic surveillance was actually conducted in those cases. Let's say that you're a Brookings institution or a Carnegie endowment for international peace or whatever. Atlantic Council, for example, uh, if you are engaging in events with foreign nationals uh, to commemorate some kind of an event, don't be surprised, uh, you know, if the Bureau has taken an interest in that, uh, even though they shouldn't be, even though there's no legitimate counterintelligence reason to do that. I just want to clarify, you said you made the request in 2019 and got the records in 2021. That seems like a really long wait to get those records. Yeah, the Bureau is infamous for the amount of time that it will, it will take if it can get away with it to respond to this stuff. You know, it, it ranged generally from at least six months to sometimes two years, depending. My general policy has been if I don't get some kind of, of answer or at least some kind of initial production within the first, I don't know, six months or so, that particular FOIA will go into a potential litigation queue. Uh, and then we will we'll take it from there and, and see where it goes. The, the problem, of course, is, is not that the Bureau doesn't have the resources to do this. There's no doubt in my mind they do have the resources to do it. They simply choose not to. And I think that that applies to an awful lot of federal agencies and departments. And that's because there's been no stick applied, essentially, no, no congressional legislative stick applied 
to get agencies and departments to get their act together and comply. And when you have federal agencies and departments being allowed to create essentially out of whole cloth, entire categories of dissemination restrictions like sensitive but unclassified or controlled unclassified information, that does not exist in FOIA. There's no statutory basis ultimately for doing any of that kind of thing. And that's just another reason why FOIA at, at this stage is a little bit out of date. It, it really needs, in my judgment, it needs a pretty major rewrite overall. So that's the first big thing that Patrick found. Assessments being made against a wide range of advocacy organizations on all sides of the spectrum. I asked him if he'd been able to put these documents into some kind of database that's accessible to the public, and he raised an issue I hadn't considered. So we have not built anything quite like that yet, um, because so many of our FOIAs continue to be outstanding, essentially, and in many cases we have received no response, uh, no responsive records, responses from the Bureau. We don't trust any of those, uh, obviously. And based on the National Security Archive experience, what it tells me is that the Bureau has a specific period of time after the investigation has been closed before they will actually, you know, let those particular documents out. We've gotten responses on a number of organizations. I talked about the Mars previously, which I treat essentially as confirmation that they do have data. Uh, most of the Glomar cases that we've actually seen over the course of the time that the Glomar decision has been extant, uh, almost invariably we find out that yes, there was a there. They were actively hiding something. Um, so I, I'm pretty confident that those Glomars do actually represent a de facto confirmation, essentially that they have some level of documentation on those particular groups. There are other groups uh, that we have reached out to when we have received essentially confirmation, actually got an assessment on the group or something like that. Our policy is to reach out before we do any kind of publication on that to find out if they want us to basically withhold publication. And if we're asked to withhold publication, we honor that uh, request. And the reason is really very simple. A lot of folks have concerns about potential reputational damage or the implications of it if it is made public that they were the target of the FBI, even if the targeting of the group was completely illegitimate and had absolutely no, no predicate, no criminal predicate at all. So we're mindful of that, uh, we're sensitive to that. And so we do have a number of groups for whom we have received data and we have not published on that. This fear of potential repercussions for the disclosure of a mere fact of assessment being done is another way to underscore the importance that these assessments have for restricting free speech, for intimidating people out of speech. But that's not the only big discovery that Patrick made. The second one, and probably the one more people will find troubling, is that the FBI routinely breaks its own internal rules for how to do investigations and then tries to pretend they didn't. One of the most important lawsuits that we've had um, that's been incredibly, incredibly productive has been a, a lawsuit that we filed last year looking for FBI Inspection Division audit reports on the Bureau's compliance or non-compliance 
with those domestic investigative guidelines that I spoke about earlier that were developed by the AG and that are instituted essentially by the FBI in an over 600-page document called the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guide. This is what Patrick mentioned earlier about the uh, Ford administration attorney general creating guidelines for the FBI that have become kind of a substitute statutory framework but they don't actually get approved by Congress and they're very difficult to make stick because there's no real enforcement mechanism included in the guidelines. However, the FBI Inspection Division does conduct audits to see how well or not well they are following these guidelines. And that's what Patrick was asking for and had to sue to receive. And so we managed to get so far six of those kinds of audits out into the public domain, largely declassified, largely unredacted, not completely, but in many cases, largely unredacted. And it paints a radically disturbing picture about the number of times that the FBI violates its own internal guidelines. The Washington Times ran a story on the basis of the last four of those audits that we got out, along with a lot of other raw data. And by their count, it was over 1,600 violations of their own regulations. And that includes people opening assessments or investigations without authority, as well as the use of unauthorized investigative techniques, among other things. It's really quite amazing how consistently, year in and year out, they violate their own rules. And and the most alarming thing in this particular batch of material that we've managed to get out on one of these audits was focused on a specific kind of assessment called a, a sensitive investigative matter. And what it found is, what that audit discovered is that in about 350 some odd cases that they examined, they found nearly 800 violations. And sensitive investigative matters, or SIMS as they're known, are specific activities, they can be assessments or preliminary investigations or full field investigations, that are looking at individuals or groups involved in the political process, religious organizations, media entities, academics, Uh, things of that nature. So when you're talking about that number of violations, and this only looked at about an 18-month period, and that, that particular sample size of 353 itself was relatively small, and yet finding that number of violations, nearly 800 in that sample size, was just absolutely astonishing. These SIMs, these sensitive investigative matters, these investigations, assessments, and the like, that are targeting people that are involved in civil society, First Amendment protected civil society activity. Every single one of us should be concerned about that. So in 353 sensitive investigative matters over the last decade, they found 800 violations of these self-created, self-imposed rules that the Bureau has for investigations. But has there been any fallout from this? Do they actually impose these rules on Bureau employees? We found no evidence so far that anybody was disciplined, much less lost their job for any of these violations over the course of this almost decade-long period. And the FBI always likes to say, well, we found the problem and we conducted training. Well, when you, when you say we found the problem in 2013, we conducted training and the same problems come up in 2014. And then you say, again, we did more training and the next year, the same problems come up again. You have a system that's broken. You clearly have a system that is broken. So there you have it. After several years of waiting for records and in many cases suing to receive records, 
Patrick discovered that the FBI is conducting assessments or investigations without any basis to believe that the subject is involved in a crime. And in doing so, they aren't even following their own internal rules, let alone the public's perception of what would be fair and just investigative practices. And we know this because of FOIA. FOIA is a broken law. And as Patrick mentioned, delay is just as bad as non-disclosure in many cases. But it's the best we've got, and we really need to use it. So, just a reminder, if there's something you want to know, ask for it. And if you need help, reach out. I don't know everything about FOIA, but I can probably at least point you at someone who does. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Have a great week.